This is the LexisNexis Torts and Personal Injury Law Community Podcast, a review of recent news stories as reported by the editors of LexisNexis Mealy Publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. The U.S. Supreme Court on June 7th reversed a decision involving the misnaming of a defendant in the original complaint in a premises liability action. The High Court concluded the mistake did not preclude the plaintiff from filing an amended complaint. A woman filed suit after she was hurt on board a cruise ship. More than a year after the injury, Costa Cruz answered the complaint, pointing out that it was the sales and booking agent for the carrier and vessel operator Costa Crociere. The woman amended her complaint, adding Costa Crociere as a party and dismissing the action against Costa Cruz. A trial court granted Costa Crociere's motion to dismiss and the 11th Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals affirmed. However, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed the 11th Circuit, noting that Costa Crociere should have known that the woman's mistake in naming the defendant in her original complaint was the result of confusion about the proper party's identity. Justice Sonia Sotomayor noted that Costa Cruz and Costa Crociere are related corporate entities with similar names. She said such an interrelationship and similarity heightened the expectation that Costa Crociere should suspect a mistake had been made when Costa Cruz is named in a complaint that actually describes Costa Crociere's activities. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Michael Lefkowitz. E.I. DuPont in the Morrison Company lost its bid to further reduce a $97 million punitive damages award against it in an environmental contamination case. On June 2nd, the West Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals denied the company's petition for rehearing on the issue. The state high court held that DuPont waited too long to challenge statements by the plaintiffs that the trial court had allocated 40% of the punitive damages award to the medical monitoring claims which the High Court had previously held are not eligible for punitive damages. The High Court also said DuPont should have presented it earlier with non-binding evidence that a special master in 2008 had recommended that 70% of the punitive award should be allocated to the medical monitoring claims. DuPont was sued over contamination from the company's zinc smelter facility in Spelter, West Virginia. A jury found DuPont liable for close to $382 million for contamination emanating from the facility, which included $196 million in punitive damages. The Supreme Court of Appeals in March of 2010 cut the punitive award by 40% after finding that punitive damages cannot be awarded for medical monitoring. DuPont filed a petition for rehearing, asking the court to further reduce the punitive award by allocating 70% of the punitive damages for medical monitoring instead of 40%. An Alabama federal judge on June 4th approved a consent judgment in a Tyson Foods donning and doffing lawsuit. The agreement will require the company to pay its employees for all of the hours they work, including those hours spent putting on and taking off protective and sanitary gear and washing themselves and the gear. The agreement settles a complaint that was filed in May 2002 and includes a $500,000 payment in overtime back wages to almost 3,000 workers at Tyson's Blountsville, Alabama facility. A panel of the Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals on June 7th refused to order a federal judge in Wisconsin to recuse himself from four lead-based paint lawsuits against Sherwin-Williams. LexisNexis Mealy's lead litigation report editor James Cordray talked about that ruling. James, what was the company attempting to do here? Uh, Sherwin-Williams sought uh, an order of mandamus to have Judge Lynn Adelman uh, recuse himself from four lead paint cases that are being consolidated in which the same attorneys who sued on behalf of Stephen Thomas 
are now suing Sherwin-Williams on behalf of four plaintiffs who claim that lead paint was defectively made, therefore Sherwin-Williams should be held liable for damages for lead paint injuries. And the Thomas case went all the way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court and was decided 5-4, very bitter divisions as you read the dissents and the majority opinion that um, created a ripple effect through the lead paint legal community, and, and it's the same group of characters now suing on behalf of these four plaintiffs. And so Sherwin-Williams thought that Judge Lynn Adelman should recuse himself because he had written a law review article uh, about a year or so ago which sided with the majority and said that they're the ones that got it right in the Thomas opinion from the Supreme Court. And Sherwin-Williams' contention was that if he was taking sides in that very bitterly divided opinion, that that would create bias in his ability to impartially hear the evidence that Sherman-Williams would put forth in these four cases that are now consolidated. So the question of whether Judge Adelman should recuse himself went to the Seventh Circuit. What did the panel find in this case? The panel found that uh, according to the, the Code of Judicial Conduct, the, gen, uh, the judge did not need to recuse himself. The Seventh Circuit said that the paint company did not establish that Judge Adelman's article would make a reasonable, thoughtful, and well-informed observer question his impartiality. Thank you, James. The Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation June 8th denied a motion to consolidate a handful of construction defect cases in which plaintiffs whose homes have domestically made drywall say they suffer many of the same problems as those with Chinese drywall. The JPMDL said the South Florida homeowners who filed the case against National Gypsum Company and other companies failed to show that any efficiencies from consolidation would outweigh individual issues presented. The plaintiffs claim they've been experiencing problems similar to those of owners of homes with Chinese drywall. The emission of noxious and corrosive levels of sulfur gases that has caused them to have to replace numerous appliances in their homes. They also say they've experienced respiratory and other health difficulties as a result of the allegedly defective domestic drywall. The panel noted that although all actions identified in the motion have some commonality of fact questions on whether the drywall caused the alleged damages and injuries, the various manufacturer defendants produced the drywall using different proprietary techniques and different sources. A key Chinese drywall manufacturer that had a default judgment for more than $2.6 million entered against it in May finally appeared in federal court June 10th only to serve notice that is appealing the judgment and all related orders to the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. Seven Virginia homeowners sued drywall manufacturer Taishan Gypsum Company Limited and other companies in a putative class action in the Eastern District of Virginia. The case was transferred by the Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation to the Eastern District of Louisiana for consolidation into the Chinese drywall MDL under Judge Eldon Fallon. In November, Judge Fallon entered a default judgment in favor of the homeowners against the Chinese government-controlled Taishan Gypsum, which never answered the complaint or filed any responsive pleading. Following default proceedings in February, Judge Fallon determined that extensive remediation of the plaintiff's homes was required. Aggregating the amounts of damages proven by all seven plaintiff families, he awarded monetary damages against Taishan Gypsum in the amount of $2.6 million. Attorneys for the company filed appearances in Judge Fallon's court June 10th and in a one-paragraph filing gave notice that the company will appeal the default judgment and all related orders to the Fifth Circuit. Meanwhile, a Virginia federal court has found that a homeowner's claims for damages caused by defective Chinese drywall are excluded from coverage. Travco Insurance Company had denied coverage for Larry Ward's claim and filed suit in the Eastern District of Virginia to seeking a declaration that 
to not liable for the damage caused by the drywall. The court found the policy's exclusions for latent defects, faulty materials, corrosion, and pollution bar coverage. However, the judge said other unclaimed losses may be subject to coverage under the policy's ensuing loss provisions. A divided panel of the Sixth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals on June 16th reversed a preemption summary judgment in a Solzer knee case. The majority found that the Federal Good Manufacturing Practice Rule, or GMP, can be construed as a requirement that parallels the plaintiff's state law claim. The patient who needed a Sulzer orthopedic knee prosthesis replaced claimed the first device contained traces of mineral oil from the manufacturing process, which he said prevented the device from bonding with his bone. The circuit court said that the good manufacturing practice rule can be read to require compliance with a validated cleaning process and that the Food and Drug Administration's final rule and guidance on the rule support their position that the rule requires removal of manufacturing residue. The majority reversed the preemption ruling, vacated summary judgment, and remanded for further proceedings. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mealy's Emerging Drugs and Devices Editor, Tom Moylan. Teva Pharmaceuticals Industries has announced it will discontinue marketing propofol and intravenous general anesthetic. Teva, a generic drug manufacturer in Israel, and Baxter Healthcare were subjected in May to a $505 million Nevada state court verdict involving the marketing of propofol. The companies say they will appeal that verdict. In a statement, Teva said its data supports that the products, when used and stored as directed, continue to be safe and effective and perform within the appropriate specification. It said it would continue to review and support the product on the market, but decided to discontinue making it because it is difficult to manufacture and has little to no profitability. LexisNexis Mealy's Asbestos Editor Brian Redding reports an Illinois appeals court June 10th held that the foreseeability of exposure to asbestos and the likelihood of a resulting injury warrant imposing a duty on employers to prevent household exposure to asbestos brought home on the clothing of CSX employees. The state's 5th District Appellate Court said ordinary principles of Illinois negligence law support imposing a duty on employers for household exposure to asbestos. Here it said the foreseeability of the harm, the likelihood of injury, the magnitude of the burden in guarding against the harm and consequences of imposing a duty to protect all weigh in favor of finding that a relationship exists between the parties and imposing such a duty. A woman filed suit against numerous companies whose conduct she claimed exposed her to asbestos. She said she was exposed to asbestos that her ex-husband brought home on his clothing after working at B&O Railroad, a predecessor to CSX. Reversing a trial court ruling, the appeals court noted there was no Illinois case directly on point but thought out-of-state cases imposing a duty of care on household members were more persuasive than those that did not impose such a duty. Quote, We believe that it takes little imagination to presume that when an employee who is exposed to asbestos brings home his work clothes, members of his family are likely to be exposed as well. End quote. Further, the court said, the risk of serious or fatal injury from exposure to asbestos is substantial enough to warrant an imposition of duty. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Brian Redding. Visit the LexisNexis store for all your legal book and software needs. The store offers thousands of titles to help you in the practice of law and in managing the business of your legal practice. You can reach our e-commerce site by clicking on the Store tab at the top of the LexisNexis homepage or by going to LexisNexis.com store. 
This edition of the LexisNexis Torts and Personal Injury Law Community Podcast was written by the editors of LexisNexis Mealy's Current and Targeted Legal News and Litigation Reports. The LexisNexis Torts and Personal Injury Community Podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. Visit all the LexisNexis communities, www.lexisnexis.com community. LexisNexis, total practice solutions. I'm Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.